0: Hello.
1: Welcome to the Oxford Anthropology Podcast.
0: You're listening. You're listening to the Oxford Anthropology Anthropology Podcast. Podcast. To the Oxford Anthropology Podcast. And I would like to welcome you to a new season of the Oxford Anthropology Podcast. This season, we have eight episodes taken from our departmental seminars, and they feature talks by senior renowned scholars like Tim Ingold and Philippe Descola, as well as up and coming cutting edge researchers in the field. I'm an associate professor of anthropology at Oxford, and in collaboration with a group of very talented graduate students, we've revived the podcast after it has lined dormant for a few years on account of the pandemic. Today I'm introducing a talk by Zhushana Ihar, a scholar at the University of Cambridge. She talked to us about crude sonics. She brought field recordings from an extractive zone to Oxford. Her work focuses on Azerbaijan, and in particular the capital city of Baku, a place where there has been a lot of petroleum industry activity over the years, but also a place that's quickly gentrifying. She brought us the sounds of of machinery from the oil industry, things called donkeys that nod in the landscape, as well as sounds of poetry in restaurants. This is a talk that will also introduce ghost stories, urban legends, and folk songs that give us a new perspective on a modern secular city project. Without further ado, Shoshana Ihar.
1: Salam, and thank you for joining me today. So the work that I'm presenting today is quite uh, still in a draft format. It's um, the sort of backbone of a multimodal website that's currently in the construction of being built. Um, So uh, during the presentation, I'll show a few snippets. But um, without further ado, I will start with um, being on theme with an audio clip. So this is also an endurance test, by the way. Uh, (laughs) And a test of your attention span. So that was the sound of Baku's insurgent and industrial underbelly. Captured in 1922, though not in this clip, which is a recreation, the audio clip that you've just heard was taken from a recreation of Arseny Avramov's composition, The Symphony of Sirens. The original piece sought for the first time in Baku's history to capture the sonic texture of petrochemical production and processing. It incorporated and reproduced the sounds of human crowds, machine guns, factory sirens, which you heard, cannons, battleships, airplanes, hydroplanes, hydroplanes, trains, and steam whistle machines, all originally conducted by Avramov via a semaphore and telephone from atop a Swedish mast. While the original performance evaded recording, it has since been subject to several recreations and reinterpretations encouraged by Avramov's arsenal of sketches, text notes and drawn sound notations. The latter entailed the creation of a universal language composed of geometric figures, circles, triangles, squares, that according to Avramov could reproduce any sound whatsoever. It rendered sound legible, with shapes gathering into music akin to lignum. For the span of the symphony, Baku's industrial and oil derrick landscape turned into an auditorium, its walls projected with an array of different political visions. It was, as the Bolshevik chronicler, René Philip Miller wrote, intended to remind the proletariat of, its, of his real home, the factory. The symphony drew the materialities of an extractive and revolutionary history into a sonic sphere, usually reserved for melodies and harmonies. According to Daniel Schwartz, the awe-inspiring noise rearranged the spatiality and temporality of the city, transforming for a brief moment the soundscapes of an otherwise religiously and ethnically divided working class into a symbol of proletarian unity and Soviet power. Other than Avramov's discordant notes and Boris Pompianke's 1933 film Oil Symphony, which synchronised the physical labour of oil workers and gushing oil with the rhythm of music, there has been a distinct lack of engagement with the sounds of Baku's oil fields since. A purely visual regime has, oh sorry, a purely visual regime has manifested instead recalling Susan Shupley's notion of the slick image of oil, of rainbow-like hues and primordial black guises dominating the cultural imaginary. Films like Kayyaf's 1950 Lights of Baku and Said Bailey's 1965 Island of Wonders, um, an extract of it seen in this clip, um, left, exemplified the legacy of shattering gushers and blackened mounds, a legacy most recently reanimated in the genre of post-Soviet documentary features about the Caspian, which routinely showcased stretches of peri-urban wastelands and a cast of nodding donkeys wearily bringing oil heavenward. The iconography of the petroleum sublime keeps with the traditions of modernity. By taking an otherwise ordinary substance and imbuing it with technological grandeur and a displaced, some would say even secularized, sense of the sacred, At the turn of the last century, oil became became the vital bloodline of science, technology and everyday culture. A whole rational order appeared to be based on the economies, sciences and politics of fossil resources. Fossil reason, in the words of Steininger and Close. This has been argued similarly by Gillian Rose and Divya Tolia Kelly, who described the transformation of crude oil from mere biogenic matter into substance-possessing, multi-sensual physical materiality and a striking visuality. To quote Rose and Tolia Kelly, it led to a co-constitution of visuality and materiality, with oil in constant dynamic process, situated within networks, hierarchies and discourses of power, It is not surprising, thus, that oil began to function as a metonym um, for an array of ways to organize the world. Oil as money, oil as blood, oil as milkshake, to refer to Daniel Day Lewis, oil as geopolitics, oil as mother of all commodities. What Apple had handily coined as petrolic semiosis, echoing Coronel's classic 1977 study of Venezuela. It shows us that oil has been abstracted into money, modernity, and even national patrimony. So amidst this scholarly frenzy, the editors of the Modern Language Association of America even suggested recently a foregoing hundred year intervals and categories born from the history of ideas, and instead divvying up literary works according to their related energy source, from wood, tallow, coal, whale oil, gasoline, to atomic power. In this way, we can see oil becoming a serious epistemological tool useful in explaining and and contextualizing a range of different habits, traditions, knowledges and norms in the real world as much as on the page. In the humanities, this has manifested in a distinct focus um, on petro cultures with scholars like Imre Saman, Jennifer Jennifer Wenzel, Amitav Ghosh, and Stephanie Lemanga providing a range of strategies to read for oil in texts, case studies, and the world itself. It created a chord between spheres of literary studies, cultural studies, and anthropology, with ethnographers like Michael Chepek, Omolade Adombe, Andrea Behrets, and Hannah Appel reading for oil along pipelines, refineries, and satellite worker towns. Yet despite the different disciplinary takes on petromodernity and petroculture, oil remains strikingly limited by reproductions of its materiality in image and text. An iridescent wash in the aftermath of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, a benign series of chains and rings during the 2009 Chevron versus Ecuador trial, obsidian black and viscous in Reno Fendi's photographs of oil-filled ponds, this entrapment within the realm of the visual and the written has led to its epistemological exhaustion. Oil can only yield so much when depicted through the same techniques and forms. It echoes what Lemanga termed the inescapability of petroleum infrastructures in her 2014 book Living Oil, leading to either the depiction of petrodystopias or petroutopias or slash petrotopias. So, with this in mind, I want to ask, what can we do when presented with a representational limit? How can we better apprehend oil and by extension extractivism beyond wells, pipelines and barrels? Is there a way beyond the oculocentrism of both the fossil fuel industry and the anthropologists who study crude oil worlds? My presentation today seeks to respond to these questions by revisiting field recordings gathered in the oil fields and oil settlements of Baku, Azerbaijan in 2019. My research in Baku took place in three neighbourhoods, Balakhane, Sabail, and Gara-Shahar. Each settlement had a unique relationship to the city's oil infrastructure, and I would later discover a unique sonic profile. Early on in my research, I had concluded that writing only field notes would render life within an extractive zone incomplete, uh, effacing a number of important dynamics. The extractivist machinery was apprehended in a markedly oral fashion by those residing in each of the settlements listed. Oil was listened to, heard and harmonised with in an array of ways sometimes talked over, sometimes as background noise during a phone call, sometimes as an alarm to compel evacuation or the sealing of windows. Recording sound clips became a way to monitor a different layer of life, one active and constantly in play with those around me. I began to frame my research in terms of sound use, of sound as knowledge, as play, as warning, as myth, as archive. Like Raymond Murray Schaffer's seminal text, The Soundscape, in which he measured in a flat line and impact sounds of combined harvesters, the decibel range of a screw-heading machine, and the tonal qualities of a white-throated sparrow, through my ethnography I sought to record and transcribe the sounds of Baku's oil districts, categorizing them according to cultural interpretation, relation, and significance. Much of my notation resembled Aramov's thick and thin lines crisscrossing the sheet, or Schaffer's own Um, uh, notational forms. I kept daily records of gas emission sirens, dog barks, arguments and creaking rigs, sometimes the product of idleness, sometimes communal observation. Much of this gets me thinking about the idea of accompaniment in anthropology. In his 1994 book, The Prose and the Passion, anthropologist Nigel Rapport decided to harmonise his ethnographic notes collected in the small English village of Venet with the writings of E.M. Foster. Unlike ethnocriticism, which sought to analyze the contents of specific literary works in order to better understand the cultural context of their author's time, for example, we might think of Richard Handler and David Segal's anthropological readings of Jane Austen, Report created an interwoven structure composed of harmonious lines. I wondered after countering Report's work whether field recordings could work similarly when paired with field notes a sort of non-deterministic mapping, which could provide cues for alternate, implicit, or, in, or even subconscious meaning. Akin to the wandering encyclopedic reading, reader of Nietzsche's modern age, could anthropologists become more responsive to the complex and varied repertoire of interpretive strategies availed, available to them in the field? Could they develop techniques which better respond to not only the heteroglossia of the contemporary, but the heterosensoriums? When Rapport read E.M. Foster and his informants in Vernet, he juxtaposed his readings against one another, listing them side by side, zigzagging between an understanding of one and that of the other. He claimed for himself a certain freedom and a certain creative potential. If something as simple as a metaphor, which moves between and cross references two different semantic domains, can, in the words of Steiner, bring forth a new mapping of the world, a reorganization of the habitation of reality, then surely harmonizing ethnographic field nodes with field recordings can do the same. It is also worth noting that much like the zigzags, which are never no- monadic isolates and always parted to some pre-existing relationship of contrast and connection, field accompaniments also work according to a similar logic. A sound captured during fieldwork is never isolated from the field itself even when played in a zoom room echo chamber it reminds it compels it kickstarts the irritating question now where have i heard that before if a tree falls in a forest some, someone is always around to hear it so thinking about what sound does i'd now like to pair a few rec- recordings with Balakane. <laughs> In the last five recordings, you've heard uh, the sound of nodding donkeys, the eviction of a family from Balakane, a taxi ride between the airport and downtown Baku, a ghost story um, told about a black pond, and a 1975 jazz classic. Um, In in a a way into Balakane, which housed Baku's first oil distilling factory built by Russians in 1937, sound becomes an essential way um, to encounter the space. To give a bit of a context about Balakane, for decades it was considered the largest oil deposit in the world, producing 6.2 tonnes of oil in the span of 12 years. Western visitors like James Doe Terry, a British journalist, and Charles Thomas Marvin, a British traveller, early on in the 20th century, would describe the township as a place of deafening wars, only intercepted by gushing, gurgling, and the grounds of exasperation sounded by workers. This would only intensify during the turn of the century, which saw the expansion of oil fields and the replacement of former wooden derricks with steel constructions. In many ways, these early descriptions of Balakane are reminiscent of the claims made by the Futurist experimenter Luigi Russolo, who in his 1913 manifesto, Arte de Rumori*, proclaimed that the pure silence of antiquity was to be replaced with a new world of machinic, impure sounds, the rumbling and rattlings of engines breathing with obvious animal spirits, the rising and fallings of pistols, the stridency of mechanical saws, the loud jumping of trolleys on their rails, the snapping of whips, the whipping of flags. His manifesto would mark a flashpoint in a history of oral perception, but thinking about Arte dei Rumori, we're also, um, we're also brought back to this place of Balakhani. Interestingly, this prediction by Russolo would herald the replacement of the pastorale and the Nocturne with the machine music of Honegger's Pacific, an imitation of a locomotive, a, a locomotive and Tyler's ballet mechanique, which employed a number of airplane propellers, Prokofiev's pasta, Asia, Mosolov's Iron Foundry, and Carlos Chavez's HP Horsepower, all dating from 1929. Whilst noted by musicologists, this sonic turn has often been missed by anthropologists and historians adamant to register industry only via the physical or structural. In my own ethnographic, in my own ethnography, it was impossible to ignore the machinic sounds of Balkhane, with interlocutors attesting to it as a hallmark of the neighbourhood. At Koma Restorani, one of the local meeting spots, a number of individuals proudly referred to Balakana as the loudest settlement in the capital, where machines still yelled like men. Interestingly, the loud, loud roar of oil became both a signifier of masculine prowess and relevance in these accounts. Whilst heard increasingly rarely, an ample deposit was thought to roar, hinting at a sense of virility and vitality, whilst older, below-capacity rigs creaked and croaked like once Gainana, or mother-in-law, to quote a local by the name of Samir. A decrease in volume was correlated with this investment by Sokar, the state oil company of the Republic of Azerbaijan, and Balakhan's own decline and loss of its former status as the center of global oil. This was particularly so by the time of the 1990s, when the exploitation of the azari Shirag gwenashli development drove oil extraction offshore, reducing the need for drilling in Balkhana. Locals often described the overland and subterranean pipelines as containing noise, moving oil invisibly out of the country. Hearing the surge of oil or the creak of the well had allowed the previous generation to keep track of production. Indeed, those belonging to an older generation remarked about the proud roars of the oil fields during the Soviet period, when Azerbaijan, as a part of the USSR, still received ample support from Moscow and experienced stable profit from onshore oil. One exception and oddity remains the last track you heard, Vagif Mustafa Zed's 1975 jazz mugham composition, Neftashlari, Shlari, Oil of Lee Rocks, which sought to integrate two different ways of musical thinking by conjoining the folkic improvisation of Mugam with rich jazz harmony. The tune was meant to emulate the rhythm and sounds of life found on an offshore oil platform, originally named Czernikame, later renamed to Neftashlari, which in 1958 turned into a proper live-in settlement. Here, despite being offshore, oil was granted an oceanic sonic texture. But returning to Balakhana, The field recordings captured in 2019 also provided an example of sonic cuts and borders, hinting at a strategic architecture of sorts. Whilst considered a proud workers settlement, a zone of technical innovation and a landscape of potential riches during the imperial and Soviet period, as stated by the 1990s and early 2000s, Balakhane had become a peri-urban backwater with crumbling houses, polluted environs, a lack of civic amenities and poorly maintained infrastructure, nothing but creaking, rusted oil derr- derricks and the clamor of the unemployed and poor. It prompted the construction of a major highway um, and a fortress-like rock wall lining, lining it from the airport all the way to the, uh, to the, the downtown of Baku. Sound in many ways was described as funneling down with attention successfully diverted. Even when pressed against the wall, um, which I did a number of times, I could barely hear any signs of life on the other side. On one occasion, being so keen-eared and performing my daily experimentation led to the conjuring of the sirens of the police, curious after having been alerted to strange eavesdropping. Um, Eavesdropping was a, a an, a, a frequent activity within Balakhane by both outsiders and locals. It's interesting with recent allegations of Azerbaijani government acquiring uh, Pegasus, a program that can record phone calls and read text messages, accessing, um, sequ- uh, accessing photographs and passwords, and secretly making audio recordings of who has the right to actually eavesdrop in these spaces. And this is a question that I'll pose uh, later on in my presentation of who can listen to who, what is being heard, what is being cited, and how does one not only talk but listen back. are moving from Balakhane to Sabayil, which is um, on the other side of Baku. Um, we see a different sonic texture. With Sabayil, we see a sonic texture that's uh, being defined by the ecology itself. So Sabayil, interestingly, much like Balakhane, was a 19th century oil town. But unlike Balakhane, it was dug downwards. What happened in Saboreo was you actually had a concave um, environment created through the man-made digging. So as you can see, um, the entire uh, township recedes into a valley. And what this has created is an amplification of all sound. So one of the frequent observations that people will make about Sabiol is that everything seems louder than it should be. Gossip ripples across, uh, across the alleyways, um, construction roars are louder than ever, and the strange sort of storage tanks that carry oil for Sokar, BP, Chevron, also create um, these peculiar acoustics that can be heard across the town. Um, but Sabiol is interestingly also a center for Ashic um, soundscapes. So, Ashic um, sound, as you can hear. So Ashik performance, as you can hear, is a communal um, musical tradition. It's most often performed in the back of restaurants, garden spaces. Um, It's also a performance that is improvisational. So there is no set repertoire that will be sung on a given night. But performers will often relate to their audience picking out uh, aspects and characteristics that they see in those that they sing to. So um, this tradition has roots in the working class area of Sabayol. Um, but one that is also being uprooted by the current processes of gentrification in Sabiel which really intensified during the F1 um, formula race, um, uh, years of Baku from 2004 onwards, where you saw uh, the hosting of Eurovision, you saw the hosting of major sports events, and a real investment in Baku's rejuvenation as a site of entertainment across the Caspian. So Sabiel became an experimental zone of um, mass gentrification, but also uh, a strange sort of glorified architectural project. So you had a number of luxury development built that were meant to function as incentives. Um, and they were meant to function as incentives predominantly for military staff, Um, stationed in Nagorno-Karabakh, so frequently you saw the sort of selling of um, or the giving over of apartments to ex-military staff, veterans but also the families of the military and also to state approved journalists. So one of the major developments which is sort of you can see along this highway, um, was even termed um, a, an apartment for the journalists of the state. So they're sort of your poet laureates of the, of the state. So suddenly you sort of see this hollowing out of a particular sound. You see the loss of the Ashik tradition. Uh, but you also see a population of different sounds. Um, and one of the, the sort of sounds that were complained about is the sort of, um, the events held by the Aliyev government uh, celebrating these openings of the apartments, which... So this one was a clip that I recorded during one of these inaugural celebrations. And um, a lot of people complain not only about the sort of um, the the breakdown in the flow of the city, the rhythm of the city, when these sort of inaugurations happened, but the loudness of them, that they were these ongoing sort of parties that happened, um, that the rest of the population, the rest of the Sabayol settlement wasn't privy to, they weren't invited to. So Sabayol is once again this site of contestation, but perhaps not as much as the next space, which was the site of uh, the most of my field work in Baku called Gara Shahar. And Gara Shahar is um, the sort of the cherry on top in the current government's urban regeneration project. So um, the 221 hectares um, sustainable settlement um, was began in t- 2006 um, and it was meant to herald the city sort of coming into uh, an environmentally Friendly status. Um, but it was also one of the most ambitious remediation projects, with Garashahar being the original oil field. So it's the oil field that was the sort of um, the, the experimental project of the Noble brothers during the late 18th century. It was the most extensive um, site of oil production in the latter part of the 20th century. Um, and it was um, a deposit that seemed to offer continuous production of oil um, up until the end of the Soviet period, which saw the decline of Gara shahar and its um, sort of um, transformation into a space for internally displaced people. So when the war began in Nagorno-Karabakh, a majority of the population was moved into Gara shahar as the only site of, of, potential inhabitation. And this was caused by two reasons. Um, First and foremost, uh, individuals, IDPs from Nagorno-Karabakh were not allowed uh, to own property. So you couldn't move to Baku and become registered in the city. Um, You had to uh, essentially inhabit sites of illegality or semi-illegality. And what that prompted was the formation of a number of makeshift towns, some of them still around. So here you can see the new remediated project uh, aptly titled the White City instead of the Black City, um, which was part of the former president's campaign to cleanse the city. As anybody does, he thought white connoted with greater sort of purity and innocence, that would sell. Um, And that became sort of the tagline of making things white, making things clean, making things pure. But in the sort of peripheries of this site, you still see the Black City and Gara Shahar had this sort of tradition once again like Sabayo being an epicenter of a shik tradition um, you had the Mugham tradition also uh, still kept especially mixed with sort of a Bakuvian and a Nagorno-Karabakh style of that music but you also had a very strong community form around these peripheries and to this day there has been a sort of ongoing campaign of eviction that hasn't been able to uh, get rid of um, these settlements. And one of the essential techniques of, um, of the community in both Sabayol and in Balakhana has been this creation of gossip. So gossip in the form of urban legends and ghost stories has been um, a, a way to discourage further gentrification, um, and that has Particularly, sort of been centered around um, this part of the black city, which has been the most politically active in resisting sort of real estate speculation and forms of gentrification. Um, And one of the clips that you hear and have heard previously in the other slides, um, for example, this field recording. this particular recording was part of a collaboration with one of my interlocutors and it was a recapturing of a story that has been shared with a number of of real estate agents but also visitors to the city and it describes the fact that in these new developments built around the white city what they're seeing is um, oil in the taps. So they're describing pipes of, you know, uh, of these luxury bathrooms emitting thick oil. And whether this is true or not um, is, isn't the important thing. What they're doing is that when you, they're seeing visitors come into the White city, these are the facts that they'll share. So when you have people visiting for um, an inspection or visiting for a potential sale of the property, you'll get bands of people coming from the black city to discourage the transfer of the property or the sale of the property. And this has become an essential part, the spreading of gossip um, across social media, but uh, less so. Uh, what you hear it is that it's told mouth to mouth, it's told verb- verbally, predominantly. Um, and alongside the sort of urban legend about this sort of oily water you're also seeing in the former sediment in the Sabayol settlement one of the sort of common stories is that you have radiation underground so once again these are claims that are not verified because the oil companies are resistant to making these sort of Um, studies. Um, There hasn't been any underground study, there hasn't been any uh, soil quality studies, Um, groundwater studies are few and far between. So the community has really had to rely on sort of these stories, stories about oily water, stories about groundwater, uh, ground radiation, and stories about even sort of sinkholes forming. And what you get is that these urban legends will turn sort of fantastical. So in the ghost stories, um, which are sort of a longer stories, that are shared both for fun and for entertainment and as part of the sort of campaign to discourage uh, remediation. In these stories, you'll hear things about men being swallowed up on their way to work by these sinkholes. You hear stories about black ponds seeping into houses and submerging sort of little girls. So you're hearing these stories that are involving specters, they're involving elements from Zoroastrianism, they're involving a sort of cues that could be thought of as religious, Um, but they're incorporating the extractive industry and they're incorporating the extractive apparatus. No longer are the ghosts or the kaboos these mainly spectral or old relict um, entities or artifacts. Um, they're inhabited and inhabitors of the oil refinery itself. Um, And these are sort of the stories that are shared alongside these other noises um, which might be sort of active protests so in demolitions one of the strategies is to sort of distract those that are doing the bulldozing or those that are doing the excavatory work with screams and shouts and to make it sort of so unbearably loud that they leave so there is a sort of um, a a crying back to or a shouting back to the growth machine Um, and uh, that's sort of similar in both gara Shahar, it's similar in Balakaneh, and it's similar in Sabayil. So you're seeing this proliferation of very similar strategies accord- uh, alongside these three desperate, uh, disparate spaces. <laughs> So there you sort of heard the sort of over layering of these three strategies um, of both the urban legend, the sort of screaming and wailing, and this sort of third other counter example of, of the sort of quiet and enjoyable zones, so the bird noise, the attestation of. Uh, the attesting to life um, in these spaces. Because obviously one of the strategies in these forced evictions is to argue that there is no good quality life in these spaces. So Ilham Aliyev, um, the current president of Baku, has frequently argued that these makeshift settlements are a place devoid of culture, devoid of music and song is one of the sort of claims that you can equate sort of an absence of culture to the absence of song. You can um, sort of equate the absence of culture to the absence of tradition. and it becomes important then to sort of archive these pre- the presence of, for example, Ashic poetry or Ashic song as something that proves otherwise. It proves that these spaces are spaces of enjoyment, they are spaces of cultural production, they are spaces of also ecological diversity. Um, one of the elements of the project in capturing these soundscapes is to also ca- capture, for example, diversity of bird song in these spaces, to say that. In these industrial zones, you actually can get, um, because of their their sort of um, level of neglect, you've been able to create sort of populations of um, of birds, of dogs, um, urban stray dogs, settlements and colonies, and other sort of wildlife as well. Um, And that has become important for the IDP settlements to argue that. there's, there's value and there's worth in these spaces beyond the aesthetic, beyond the visual. So the QR codes allow you to actually enter the project which are over there So the QR codes do actually allow you to go onto the sort of website um, that it's the sort of first iteration of the website. It's currently sort of being built, but it will house these different sort of soundscapes, um, different ways of notating and also visualizing the sounds. So there's been a sort of sonic map that's been built to emulate both the sort of terrain of Baku, but moving with the sounds itself. So you have this sort of loop of the music and the sort of sound Um, being the cartographic device instead of the satellite images, instead of the sort of other visual mapping techniques. Um, So it's sort of thinking about whether we can do sort of a sonic cartography instead. Um, And the sort of motivation behind the multimodal project um, was to sort of, one, create an alternate archive of these sounds. So if we are talking about sound as testimony and sound as evidentiary matter, which there has been a sort of, mo- there has been a sort of attempt by these IDP activist organizations to get these sort of sounds to be recognized as sounds of inhabitation. So proof of inhabitation, proof of, um, of rightful inhabitation and sustained inhabitation. Um, but one of the failings in this is the fact that it's just not taken seriously, you can't sort of, uh, it, they've been not allowed to include sonic, so auditory or video material in these cases, they've been told, put in a document, and that will serve as your testimony. Um, So one, there is a sort of um, a a need to, to sort of um, maybe fight against this idea of what counts as legal proof or legal evidence in the space of Baku but then this sort of real initiative to create an alternate archive to say that if we can't enter the area of sort of norm- normative legal structure then let's create this alternate archive let's create an alternate assertion of presence which has been the sort of strategy of IDPs of an inherent awareness that One, they won't be taken as legitimate actors within the legal sphere, so what's essentially needed is just an archiving um, uh, by themselves and for themselves. And secondly, there is also a contestation around who owns archives in in Azerbaijan, particularly when it comes to the oil infrastructure and the oil refinery space. Um, The majority of archival matter, when it relates to spaces like Balakhana or spaces like Garashahar, are still owned by the Brenoble, the Noble Brothers Corporation. So you're seeing Sweden still have claim over this archival matter. And you actually have to go through the Brenoble sort of entity to gain permission to use this material. So in terms of videos captured um, from the beginning of the 20th century, you still need to, and the end of the 19th century, you still need to sort of go through this Chernobyl agency. But not just that, um, because Chernobyl still owns Villa Petrolea, which was the noble brother's um, sort of a place of residence, anything sort of on those grounds is still owned by the entity, so by the Grenoble organisation. So in terms of actually getting archival material, Uh, of these spaces. It becomes next to impossible without going through this entity. So it's also about thinking about who owns these archival uh, archival recollections and maybe thinking about the fact that this other sort of um, period of Balakana or Gadashahara's history or Sabiel's history also deserves mention and also deserves an alternate archival space. And then I think Lastly, there is also the fact of how has Azerbaijan been engaged with the landscape itself? I mean, in terms of Baku and the Absheron Peninsula, um, in the cartography of it, it's been in the hands of the oil corporations. When it comes to hydrographical surveys, when it comes to even ecological surveys, it all has had to go through the state oil corporation SOCAR. So the actual mapping of the city space has only been done so far as what SOCAR has uh, permitted or has engaged in. Um, so in creating these sort of sonic and spectral maps, you're also Giving something that's sort of Viveiros de Castro, you know, termed the alternative views and experiences of the world, um, or the view of alternative worlds, um, and then I think lastly, sort of the 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 way that sort of these sonic notes. Um, want to sort of intervene in things is the actual role of the anthropologists um, themselves mm-hmm. right so um, in the project um, I got to thinking in terms of especially this um, this this legality around eavesdropping in Azerbaijan where sort of, you know the the alleyways of Garashahara were sort of described as communal ear canals, but then you also have these sort of walls that are so sort of um, they they cleave and they block and they um, and they create these pockets of silence and then there is this sort of active hostility around the act of recording the act of taking notes. Um, I remember that one of the you know the the most sort of dangerous things that I could do was take my notepad out because it was seen as uh, not in the communities themselves, but when it comes to the police and when it comes to sort of state operators, you're just not supposed to take your filled book out filled notebook out because. It's not, um, it, it's seen with so much suspicion. So you do have this element of taking sort of covert recordings, especially of the demolitions, especially of the evictions. Um, so it, it lends itself to this conceptualization of the anthropologist as, as an eavesdropper, right? And it comes back to even the etymological root of noten, or a note, a sound note, but also field note, as not only an observing, but a marking carefully of something. So, there is something active and passive suggested there but then i also think about eavesdropping or of noting um, as a multivalent nothing so shakespeare would have had it in his play much ado about nothing referring to illicit or concealed forms of overhearing that lead to Much Ado, right or nothing so there is this tension around whether eavesdropping actually sort of allows you to take um, note of anything worthy or anything interesting. Um, but we also know by Polonius, right, um, hiding behind, um, hiding in the closet, in Gertrude's closet, that the eavesdropper also gets stabbed in the end, right? So it's also the anthropologist doing something that's quite dangerous and quite illicit. So we know that sound as an entity can be can be evidentiary and it can be a dangerous sort of artifact to hold on to. Um, and Uh, you know, once again, dangerous to who and dangerous for what purposes. Um, But I think there is something interesting in that tension there to think about noting and nothing, but also this idea of taking a mental mark of and then making a mark on something. but yeah, perhaps uh, at best, the anthropologi- anthropologist as an Eve Joffe, is more akin to Benjamin's angel, right? So I think um, thinking about listening to who, with, or what uh, is something that has to be asked um, in the field of anthropology. And I think, you know, they were seeing this momentum. I think about um, the book Listening After Nature, but also the, the now this interesting multimodal techniques that we are thinking about what else can we do with sort of the anthropologist toolkit? Is it only the field note or are we sort of pushed towards being recorders of um, of sound, being sort of uh, collectors of sound as well? Not like an ethnomusicologist, but in a different way. Um, And is it a factual or descriptive style of doing anthropology when we take notes? Is it something that we're rooting to become objective notes or is it something to create an alternative stylistic intervention. So I think that's another question to interrogate when thinking about sound is, is it going to be a descriptive technology or is it going to be a factual technology when we're using it? Um, Is it gonna be a political technology or is it going to be an aesthetic technology? um, Knowing that sound has this sort of aesthetic tradition. Um, And maybe sort of uh, to to end with with, with a critique with I think about Sperber, uh, bemoaning the great loss of knowledge which occurs between what anthropologists learn in the field and what they manage to convey. So his great plight against sort of jargon and uh, dominating the way that anthropology is written and this sort of uh, intense fieldwork experience turning into a painstaking abstract disquisition. I sort of, yeah, want to think about sound as something that can counter that, that just like literary modes of expression, can bring a different style into being, can bring a different sort of um, lexicon into being.
0: Thanks for listening to the Oxford Anthropology Podcast. For more episodes, visit podcast.ox.ac.uk slash anthropology or find us on Apple Podcast Audio.